KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. From KCRW, I'm Kim Masters, and this is The Business. If you missed seeing the hit musical Waitress on Broadway, you might have a chance to catch it on the big screen. The show was shot for theatrical release, which warms the heart of Sarah Bareilles. Waitress was her first musical, and she not only starred in it, but also wrote the music and lyrics. It just was this wonderful experiment of a deep-rooted love in musical theater and a real naivete about the amount of heavy lifting it requires to create a musical. (laughs) But I'm really grateful I didn't know how hard it would be because it has been the great love of my life. Bareilles joins producer Jenny Nelson to talk about what went into the theatrical release of Waitress and Tony-winning producers Stuart F. Lane and Bonnie Comley talk about another way to experience theater on their streaming service, Broadway HD. But first we banter. Stick around. It's the business from KCRW. I am joined by my colleague in banter, Matt Bellany. Hello, Matt. Hi there. So the moguls have been talking. Uh, There was a New York Times deal book summit in the last few days. David Zaslav was interviewed. Bob Iger was interviewed. I think Bob Iger had the more interesting interview. So we'll talk about that a little bit. He was asked by Andrew Ross Sorkin, a real reporter, as opposed to David Muir, who questioned him for the earlier Disney town hall. He was asked about a lot of issues that are major for Disney, including succession. Iger said he's focusing on not making the same mistake twice. We didn't specify, I think, what that was. But he said he's tried to conduct his own postmortem so that we as a company don't do it again. He's maybe throwing a little blame not on himself. (laughs) What did we do wrong? And we discovered certain things that we could do better like not picking someone that Iger disliked so much that he was going to try to destroy him when he was supposedly retired from the company. Yeah, the use of we there is pretty funny, <laughs> considering that the, the royal entire succession... <laughs> the royal we? Yeah, the royal we. The entire succession problem in the first place was Iger's alone because he refused to step down, and then when he did, his hand-picked successor was not the guy they needed, or at least not in the eyes of the board. And I'm not sure I've bought that hand-picked thing from the beginning. I mean, by the time the board was, as I understand it, kind of leaning on him, he's turning 70 at that point, like, make a decision. First of all, the people who had been supposedly in line, like Tom Staggs or Kevin Mayer, had gone from the company. And there weren't that many internal candidates. Certainly, Bob Chapek had been there for years. I almost suspect that Iger thought, you know, if you don't want me, you have this guy. And that did not go well. But as we know now, he's brought in this guy from Pepsi, very high level, as the CFO. So maybe that's a contender, although not a Disney guy who's been soaked in the Disney culture for years. So I'm not sure they're so much better off this time. But yes, we will have to do better, he said. Yes, and he also did not say what specifically they are doing differently this time or name any candidates or any people that are being given additional responsibility to see if they might be in line. So we still are just back where we were on questioning who's actually going to take over this company when Iger leaves in three years. 
He did say that he is not selling ABC, which is something that he had hinted earlier in an earlier interview on CNBC that that might happen. Now he says it's not happening. That was a means of me saying to Wall Street that my head was not in the sand. I did not want to get accused of being kind of an old media executive. Yeah, that could not happen. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Well, it was a trial balloon. You know, the reason you say that the linear TV assets may not be core is because you want to send a message to anyone who might potentially buy them that we're open for business. Now, it's pretty clear that either there were no buyers or not at the price that Iger thought made sense. So he's now saying we've done a strategic review and we want to keep this stuff, which I think, you know, most of the analysts seem to think there are still synergies between ESPN, ABC, and some of their plans for Hulu. They can do a lot more to cross-pollinate, and Dana Walden, the TV head, has talked about that, you know, better leveraging the TV assets for Hulu. So, you know, it's not like they are putting their tail between their legs on ABC. They do still see value there. But I think it's a little bit of a dodge for Iger to say, oh, we were not interested in selling this they were at the right price. I have to say that when I read the quote, I read it, initially read it as, I did not want to get accused of being kind of an old media executive as opposed to old media executive. So, Well, it's tough to argue against that first one. <laughs> I just had to read it twice. Uh, he talked about Elon Musk. Disney is among the many, many companies that have stopped advertising on Twitter in the aftermath of Elon Musk endorsing a anti-Semitic trope. He said, I have a lot of respect for Elon and what he has accomplished, but he said by him taking the position he took in a public manner, we felt that the association was not necessarily a positive one for us. Obviously, they're not the only ones that feel that way. It's a tough situation right now if you, when you simultaneously are trying to lure back advertisers and you, you know, do the uh, anti-Semitic trope followed by reviving the Pizzagate conspiracy theory. But Iger didn't have no apologies to make there, obviously. And then he talked about dissident shareholders. You know, he's got Nelson Peltz trying to get on the board. He did not seem too receptive to that. No, a little bit dismissive, as he usually is towards Peltz, saying, you know, we don't actually have a board seat available. <laughs> but uh, obviously, Peltz thinks that he should have somebody else's seat. And he kind of punted that over to the board, and that being their responsibility to communicate with shareholders. Um, we'll see how that goes, because Peltz is going to probably present his whole idea for what he wants to do and be on the board for. Uh, we'll see what he actually has to say. Yes, to sum it up, Iger's been talking to the public, to his employees, because Disney is in a very unaccustomed place of so many troubles. He's trying to, you know, inspire confidence and tell people it'll be okay. And we'll see what it happens. At the end of the day, Disney is Disney. It has a lot of very precious assets. And you figure one way or another, that ship gets righted. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. That's Matt Bellany, founding partner of Puck News. Married Broadway producers Stuart F. Lane and Bonnie Comley have racked up a combined nine Tony wins and literally brought Broadway into the digital age. Their production of She Loves Me earned an entry in Guinness World Records as the first live-streamed Broadway show. After years of producing video captures for distributors like MTV and PBS without much return on investment, Comley and Lane launched Broadway HD in 2015. The streaming service started out with 100 titles and has since tripled its library, becoming a permanent home for shows like Phantom of the Opera, Titanic the Musical, and 42nd Street. 
Comley and Lane talked to NPR contributor Jeff London about how the pandemic helped shed the stigma of streaming Broadway shows at home and acknowledged that their streaming service can never replace the live theatrical experience. I know that actually before you established Broadway HD, which was back in 2015, you had produced some live captures together. And I, you know, to let audiences know what a live capture is, I'm sure there's a great deal (laughs) involved to make that happen. So what productions did you do live captures of? And, and, you know, how did you convince unions and, (laughs) you know, everybody involved to do this? go that way. Well, the first ones, I mean, Stu and I have been involved with these for a very long time. So the first one that Stu was involved with was the Will Rogers Follies back at the Palace Theater in 1993. Japan Satellite Broadcast was one of the producers of the live stage show with the understanding that they were going to bring it to pay-per-view in Japan. And I think the next one that we were involved with was Legally Blonde, also at the Palace Theater, um, that was on MTV. We did Grease is the Word. We did uh, Company with Neil Patrick Harris. We did Company with Rayola Sparza. So there were all of these captures that we, you know, anytime we had the possibility of sharing a show outside the theater, Stu and I were saying, yes, we're in favor of that. Yes, that's something that is additive to the industry. Because to the difficulty that you pointed out of like, well, how did you convince everybody? And at that time, I mean, the industry term is cannibalizing the live ticket sales. So the producers now for a musical, it's standard that it would cost $20 million to get a Broadway musical to that Broadway stage. So you're $20 million at risk, and some people are still not entirely convinced that if you have it available in digital form, that that's not going to take away from the sales at the box office. And although there's no definitive proof that that's the case one way or another. There is anecdotal evidence like a Hamilton. And what we're finding is there's no one size fits all. There's no one thing that you can compare something to because each of these shows is so very different too. What we're seeing now is that after the pandemic, people are much more aware that the digital piece is a way to expand the fan base. Over the years, we were able to, you know, capture these shows. And about 10 years ago, we finally looked at each other and said, you know what, we've been doing these as one-offs all this time. And each time just sort of clawing and scratching to get our investment back. You know, where's the business in here? And I think that with the timing of the technology, it was streaming. That's when we launched Broadway HD, which we started building the platform itself about 10 years ago and launched just over eight years ago. You know, we have over 300 shows now on our website. And we're very excited because this summer we shot live Titanic 1997 Tony Award-winning musical, Maury Yeston uh, composed. And we're very excited about this. It's a a beautiful production, huge cast. So that'll be coming onto our website this December. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, how you make the capture work? You know, how many cameras you're using? I've gone onto the website and I've watched a whole bunch of things. You know, 42nd Street, which is a great capture of a 
big old-fashioned Broadway musical and one of my favorite plays, Indecent, which is a beautiful, kind of heartbreakingly gorgeous production. And again, you know, you just get that feeling. Not the same as being in a theater with... We're not here to replace the theater. A thousand people, but, you know, what you do get from these captures are close-ups and viewpoints of the acting that you would not get, even if you were sitting in, you know, row E on the aisle, right? We equate it often to sports events, even though it's not exactly the same thing, but that idea that you can go to a football stadium and watch a football game, or you can watch it at home and get close-ups and get commentary. And that's what the digital captures provide, is it's different viewpoints, multiple viewpoints from the cameras, multiple cameras in the theater. And it gives you the best views in that theater. And when you do one of these, do you capture, like, several performances? Do you just Go in there for one performance and you figured oh, out all the shots. that would be shots. nice if we could. But no, no, no. We, we, we shoot several performances plus some pickup shots. Uh, you know, we, we go right into the soundboard, so we're getting great sound. Uh, and generally, except for maybe some lighting, because we're using a different medium, we capture what exactly is going on. So we don't want the actors to change their style. We don't want them to do anything different than they would. Our shooting director works closely with the stage directors to keep the essence and the feeling of of the show intact. Uh, you mentioned the 42nd Street production. Mark Bramble, who wrote the original book to the musical, was there directing it in this production. And it was one of those rare occasions where he kept the spirit and the energy of the show, because he knew what it was, something that, you know, you'll never get with someone else directing it. He had the Gower Champion touch with him. Yeah, there were a lot of things about that that reminded me of, you know, going back in 1980 and seeing that production. I actually want to go back a little bit because, you know, March of 2020 happens, and all of a sudden there's no live performance. And you had this catalog of 300 or so shows. Did you find that people migrated to your platform during COVID? I think that when you're an existing business, it's easier to just maintain. And we were already cloud-based because we all work, you know, and on an internet business. So we were really one of the only still operating businesses within the Broadway industry in March of 2020. You know, I think that with that, people that had felt that the digital version is a lesser than, right? You wouldn't admit that you watched theater. You know, there's a lot of people that just wouldn't admit that they watched it on television. But then when Hamilton came online early to Disney+, Plus, everybody was sharing that they were watching it. And I think that took a lot of the stigma out of people do consider it a lesser than. It's sort of the the fragrance, if you will, you know, to the luxury brands. You might not be able to afford the Louis Vuitton pocketbook, but you could afford the fragrance, you know, so you can have a piece of that luxury brand. And I think that that, you know, Broadway HD is sort of that, the fragrance to the industry in, in a lot of ways, that it is a lesser version if you're comparing it to, you know, going to the live show. But for the people that can't get there or that can't get there anymore or that missed that performance, it's everything. There are some other companies that are doing things. You mentioned Disney Plus mm-hmm. with Hamilton. Apple TV had come from away. Mm-hmm. Do those feel more like one-offs? Well, exactly. They're, you know, you don't go to Disney Plus to see a live capture. You might go for the Marvel comics. You might go for the, the animation. But they have one capture that they did. Same thing with Apple. They, they, they grabbed one. 
I think eventually all roads lead to Broadway HD because that's what we do. And when people want that kind of entertainment, that's when they're going to come to us for it. So I think eventually, and you see this opening up now within the streaming industry, they're actually licensing some of their materials now to the other companies because they can make more money licensing it out to someone else than keeping it on their own website. We're a niche. We're a very specific type of content, but we're the aggregator for it. And to your, you know, Disney and these other ones, they're the ones that are taking, to go back to my sports metaphor, they're always looking for the Super Bowl. They're looking for the show that has jumped over from being, oh, it's a Broadway audience to its pop culture. They're always coming in to look for the popular Broadway show to bring it to their platform because it might bring in other people, but they're not really interested in all of it. So what Broadway HD is, is we're for the season subscribers. We are, you're the season ticket holder to theater. And when somebody else, we've because we were asked, you know, oh my God, Disney's got Hamilton. Are you going to go out of business now? And I said, I don't think so. And the reason is because they're looking for the Super Bowl show. They're looking for that one thing for Come From Away or the Diana musical ended up on uh, it's Netflix. Netflix. You know, so they're looking for these things that they think, oh, here's something special for our audience. We grabbed this Broadway show. But eventually, as Stu pointed out, content migrates, right? Because Seinfeld didn't originate on Netflix, but there it is. You know, so these things kind of, they just migrate from one platform to another now. And we all understand that. But where is the place if I want to watch theater on a screen, you go to Broadway HD. Because you can go watch Hamilton, but then after Hamilton, what is there? And you start searching, well, you end up at Broadway HD within a few clicks because we have the deepest catalog of this type of content. And that's probably, as I said, that's the legacy that we'll leave behind is that we will be the aggregator of stage to screen. Coming up after the break, singer, songwriter, actress Sarah Bareilles and producer Jesse Nelson talk about what went into bringing their hit musical, Waitress, to the big screen. You're listening to The Business from KCRW. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Seen on the Screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. This is The Business, and I'm Kim Masters. Waitress came into the world as a 2007 film written and directed by Adrian Shelley and starring Carrie Russell. You might recall that Shelley was tragically murdered several months before the movie was released, but her work lives on. In 2016, it was adapted as a Broadway musical featuring the many talents of Sarah Bareilles, who not only starred in the production, but wrote the music and the lyrics. Waitress had a four-year run on Broadway and was nominated for Tony Awards in several categories. 
The show closed in January 2020, but came back in 2021, becoming the first musical to hit Broadway after the pandemic shut theaters down. This time, the production was filmed over its four-month limited engagement, and that version of the show premiered at this year's Tribeca Film Festival. Borellis and producer Jesse Nelson spoke to NPR contributor Jeff London about what it took to bring the show to the big screen. First of all, they sent me a screener of Waitress, and I just think it's a fantastic video capture of the show. And it sort of brought me back to seeing it years ago when it opened on Broadway. I just wanted to actually, before we got into the screen capture, talk a little bit about what brought the two of you into it and uh, adapting the Adrian Shelley film, because I know you both made your Broadway debuts as writers with that production. Yes. <laughs> we leapt into the deep end together, hand in hand, Jesse and I. I was on the project a little bit preceding Jesse. I was approached when Diane Paulus, our director, was already attached and our producers, the Weislers, Barry and Fran Weisler, were already kind of setting the wheels in motion. And we were sort of interviewing for the right fit. And Jesse came along. I don't remember timeline, Jess. Was it six months into it or something like that? I can't quite remember. No, I, I think several years into it. Oh, great. Time. What is time? You know what I mean? <laughs> but... um. It just was this wonderful experiment of a deep-rooted love in musical theater and a real naivete about the amount of heavy lifting it requires to create a musical. (laughs) Um, But I'm really grateful I didn't know enough to know how hard it would be because it has been the great love of my life. I love this show so much and I'm so proud to be a part of it. Yeah, it was interesting. Sarah and I were strangers. We had never met when we set sail on this. And what we both had in common is we had never written for the theater before. And so um, there was a kind of real plucky bravery that we had because we didn't know the rules. And sometimes that would smash us into a brick wall. And sometimes that would like open up the entire second act for us. So that was a wonderful thing. And it was wonderful that we had our director, Diane Paulus, who had done a lot of musicals. So she could kind of guide all the inspiration that was coming her way. So the show ran for like 1,500 performances, and Sarah, you came in and took over the role of Jenna for a while, and then the pandemic happened, and you brought it back. And I I remember, Sarah, when we talked, I guess it was 2016, and I was doing a piece about pop music on Broadway, and I talked to Duncan Sheik, who, Jesse, you've also collaborated with. And, you know, for you, Sarah, it was just this new world. And since then, in addition to playing the lead role in Waitress, you were in Girls 5 Eva, and you were in Jesus Christ Superstar on TV, and you co-hosted the Tonys and the Sondheim's Into the Woods on Broadway, and now you're starring and producing together this video capture. So tell me how it came about. Um, I think when we reopened post-pandemic, which, by the way, shout out to Chuck Schumer for giving that grant that allowed Broadway to, to reopen after the pandemic. But we realized we had this really, really beautiful cast, and it would probably be the last time these people would be together. And so out of that came this urgency to do the live capture. And then we were realizing that Broadway was shutting down again because COVID was spreading through the community. So we had to do it really, really quickly. 
So we partnered with Michael Rolfe, who had done the original movie, and our producers, uh, Barry Weisler and Alicia and Fran, and like everybody just, you know, hit the ground running to pull this together as quick as they could. And at that time, you didn't have a distributor or you were just kind of doing it to get it and then hoping that it would land somewhere? A soft landing? A soft place yeah. to land. That's what we were looking for. Yeah. <laughs> we kind of had faith that we had lightning in a bottle and that even though, like everything on Waitress, it might take a while and it might take time and it might not be an easy road, we kind of had faith that eventually it would find a home. And also, we just love the idea. This is something Sarah and I really share of bringing theater to more people than can see it on Broadway, to small towns and all that. So this seemed like a way to continue that aspect of what was so important to us. So even though we didn't immediately have a a home for it, at least we knew that eventually it could reach all these different places. And it'll be interesting, too, that at least initially people will be experiencing this like being in the theater, you know, in the Broadway theater or when it was on tour, all presumably laughing together and crying together. But what is your hope eventually for what will happen with this piece? Uh, you know, where it'll migrate? Will it be available in streaming video? And and also just how did the Fathom Events portion of this come about? The Fathom Event portion of it came about through us playing at the Tribeca Film Festival. We had our premiere and shout out to Bleecker Street, who saw it play with an audience and um, also Film Nation and, and realized, oh, my God, this is such a wonderful event with an audience. They're having such a, an intense communal experience. So they reached out to us, connected with Fathom about releasing it in theaters, which to me was like such a brilliant idea because coming from theater, you you do want it to be seen with an audience. It does have a beautiful way of playing in a large space. But I think we hope eventually to be on a streamer and let it live forever. Because to me, it is the kind of piece. And we saw this when it was on Broadway. We had people we called frequent pyres, but they were people who came to the play 18 times, 62 times, 50 times. And I think if it's on a streamer, people can you know revisit it at the holidays, gather their friends to see it. So I think it would be wonderful if it found a home there eventually. You know, one thing that I did miss was the smell of the pies as you entered the theater. I don't know how you guys made that happen. You know, anytime you see a show, it's about entering into a new world. And so for the two, two and a half hours, you're in that world. But that really helped bring us in. Obviously, you can't have smell-o-vision on a a movie or a streamer. Our producer, Barry Weisler, literally moved a convection oven into the lobby of our Broadway theater and would bake a pie every night. And that's what you would smell in the theater. And that was my first question to Bleecker Street. Can we possibly have the smell of a pie in these theaters? And of course, <laughs> you can't do it on a 1200 release, but it'd be great. Were there highlights for you in terms of, you know, pieces in this video capture? I'll answer for me one of the things. I mean, I will say the thing about having only ever made one musical, and I, I won't speak for you, Jesse, but... I mean, we care about this project so deeply. It's impossible to sort of like take a backseat in any way. So we were very, very involved, you know, up until editing and sound mixing and just like spending as much time as humanly possible with our actual hands on the material. And one of the 
pieces that I think came out so beautifully is Soft Place to Land. Just the colors and the shots and the use of slow motion and just really capturing the subtleties of that time on stage. As an actor, it's one of my favorite parts of the show because I also really love and bonded with my castmates, Caitlin Houlihan and Charity Angel Dawson. So it's just a really beautiful kind of portrait of sisterhood that I I really love watching and I'm so proud of how that part is, is captured. Yeah, I agree with Sarah because we didn't set sail to be an all-female team that created this show, but that's how it ended up getting birthed was from an all-female team. And that particular song was sort of the best of everybody working together, our choreographer, Lauren Lataro, our director, Diane, Sarah creating that beautiful song, the actresses bringing so much. And so that really became this moment that expressed the power and the beauty of female friendship. But again, there's so many moments that I think in the capture are really extraordinary. So I'm so thrilled that we have it. I think what I feel so excited by is that I think what this is achieving, and, and this form is relatively new, right? Like it's not, I mean, not that theater productions haven't been recorded, but it hasn't been in the vernacular of the industry for that many years. And I think at its best, it's just bringing you closer to the performances, but it doesn't take away your desire to still be in the theater and experience these shows firsthand if that's available to you. But I do love the intimacy that creating something for the screen can offer. And we're also seeing so much enthusiasm for it as it comes out on December 7th and it's going into theaters. And it's just exciting to see that, like, you know, theaters are selling beautifully and there's a huge demand for this piece. So that's just an exciting place to be. Yeah. Well, Sarah and Jesse, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And that's the business. Joshua Farnham produced and edited today's program with help this week from Desmond Taylor and John Meek, who mixed the show. You can stream the business as well as other great KCRW shows on kcrw.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kim Masters. We'll see you next week on The Business. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.